0: Hey, welcome to day 28 of our Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Job chapters 8 through 10, uh, and then Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 through 20, and then Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Okay, let's begin by looking at Job chapters 8 through 10. So Job chapter 8 um, is contains a speech of Bildad the Shuhite in response to Job, and Here, I've mentioned this in the past, but just want to remind everybody that the main fault that a lot of his friends have, Job's friends have in their argument, is that they present a very mechanical view of God, that if you do the right things, then God will do right by you. And technically, this is true, right, that God does reward the righteous, that God does... um, uh give us give us grace and 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 that he brings justice to those who do not know him the problem here however is defining when and where and how that's going to take place by saying that uh if a bad thing is happening to you then that must mean that god is somehow displeased with you that you've done so- i mean it could be right but where is the room for, say, well, to use a familiar example to us, Joseph wallowing in an Egyptian prison for years and years and years? Um, <clears throat> certainly, Joseph had done nothing wrong, and and if he had concluded from his circumstances, from the, the, the tough things that he was going through, this extremely uh, devastating part of his life, that therefore, God is displeased with me, God has closed his eyes to me, then that obviously would have been a false conclusion. And so, that's the real danger with this mechanical view of of God. It, it is not that that God is not is not in fact just, and we need to we need to wrap our heads around that. No, God is just. It's just that the mechanical view of God says that that bad things shouldn't be happening to me if I'm doing what is what is right. And really, a big part of what Job eventually learns in in this book is how. God uh, has a much grander view of the world than we do. He sees much more than we do. He knows much more than we do, and he's doing much more than we can imagine. And so it's very presumptuous in the midst of suffering to look at that suffering and conclude, therefore, something is wrong between me and God. Um, so he begins, Bildad begins by asking questions about, does, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? Of course, God is just. And... Um, And so, let's infer from this situation uh, what the problem is here, Job. And and then in verse 4, this even leads him to make this extremely painful comment, this comment that must have been devastating for Job to hear. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Uh, Imagine that, telling a father who had just lost 10 children in one day, all of his children, um, that that this is God delivering them into the hand of their transgression. This is the kind of thing that this reasoning uh, requires of us. Um, so, of course, verses 5 through 7, if, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was, was small, your latter days will be very great. So, of course, Job, if you repent, he will restore you. Um, then we get, um, this idea that the, the wicked will perish like a reed with no water. Um, and ultimately, of course, this is so because God is just Verses 20 through 22. God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, but the tent of the wicked will be no more. Um, so of course, God acts this way. Um, of of course he is rewarding the good and 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 uh, paying the wicked with retribution. Then job answers and his answers um, essentially, yes, yes, I know that truly I know that it is so he says um, he asks though, but how can a man be right before God okay and and then he launches into this this uh, series of statements that actually sound a lot like God's eventual answer to him in chapter 38. Those of you who have read that before know what I'm talking about, but you get these statements um, like... um, uh, that that he that God is the one who removes mountains and they know it not. He's the one who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He's the one who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Um, so this is this is you know sounds a lot like the lesson that Job eventually gets from God himself, um, where it's like you know where were you when I when I laid the foundations of the earth. Have you ever commanded the sun to rise? And this idea that where where God's sovereignty and his power and his omnipotence and his omniscience is just so great that we really are not in any kind of position to judge the decisions that he made. I always phrase it as, when was the last time when you um, ordered a universe? Um and in, in here, another thing I want to tag is that if you uh, if you look at Job's response in verse 13, so chapter 9, 13, you get this mention of another one of these mythological creatures. Remember, we saw, we, I said this about Leviathan when we encountered Leviathan before, but here, uh, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab and Kind of so I mean obviously if, if you know the Bible, then you might be like, oh, this is Rahab, the prostitute from the book of Joshua, but no, this is a different Rahab, who, like Leviathan, is a, a mythical creature whom God does battle with. And um we see Rahab appearing in also in Job twenty-six twelve, and then in the Psalms, in Psalms eighty seven, four and eighty-nine ten. And then twice in Isaiah, Isaiah 30, verse 7, and 51, verse 9. And if you look at uh, Isaiah 51, 9, uh, look at how it describes this Rahab. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? So, just as Leviathan is it's not like a dinosaur or some kind of animal that... It dwells in in that truly dwells in the sea here on earth, but is rather described in the Psalms as this 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 multiple headed monster. So here Rahab is used in a similar way. And as I said there, it's not as if it's not as if this is tipping its hat towards like, okay, yeah, we actually believe that there's really a Rahab or that there's really a Leviathan. Um, no, this is this is the Bible employing imagery in terms that would have been familiar to its readers, and I think, by the way, that it's very telling that every single reference where you find these creatures in the Bible is in poetry. That's not to say that things in poetry are never true or never really refer to things that are in the actual world, but it is to say that uh uh, he, these are all found in literature, which is, <clears throat> which delves highly into the symbolic, and um, <clears throat> and uh, uses a lot of imagery, and yeah, that that's kind of like the language of poetry. You know, you you don't tend to find, as you do in some other cultures, references to these creatures in prose that is more historically straightforward. Um, okay, so just to to make a note there. We, we see that. We, we, we see Rahab here. Um, but yeah, so so this is Job essentially like, you know, who can be in the right before God? If, if it is true that God will reward me if I do righteous, well, who actually is really righteous before God? And that is something that we'd kind of want to affirm as well. Um, and so Job uh, launches into this frustrated tirade of confusion I guess I'm essentially. I guess I'm living a lie now. So, um, I, I guess I I should appeal to God for mercy, even though I'm in the right. Uh, okay. So look at verses 14 through 16. How can I answer him, choosing my words with him, though I am in the right? I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I'm some, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Um, and this here, what Job is saying is, okay, so no one can be in the right before God. Maybe I should just cast myself on his mercy and and confess some sin here, but I'm not aware of sin. Remember, Job in the book of Job is is described as an utterly righteous man, and so he's like, I could just make stuff up, um, but that itself would make me evil. So verses 20 through 21, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Um, uh, per- perhaps then the answer is that God is unjust then. You know, if 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 this is, if I'm in a spot where the only thing I could do is is say falsehoods, maybe God is 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 being unjust. Um, And uh, you see this accusation in verses 22 through 24. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? So, um, yeah, all, all this terrible stuff that's happened, God must be the author of evil then, as it is said. Of course, that's a frustratingly vague statement, but that's not the topic of this morning's uh, podcast here, so I digress. Um, so, ultimately, Job lands in here in this chapter, in chapter 9, uh, on this notion that that he's going to have to actually just shut up, he's got he's got nothing uh, to say, and uh, there's no one to really who could really judge between me and God. He's just stronger, so I defer to that. Uh, verses 33 through 35, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me, then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Okay, let's look briefly now at uh Proverbs uh, chapter 3 verses 13 through 20. Okay, here we see wisdom once again and personified as a lady. Um there uh kind of a, a lady who is who is valuable to to know, who is valuable to be acquainted with. Um the gain from her is better than silver, her profit is better than Gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. And um, and it and then she's displayed as in her left hand holding long life, in her right hand holding riches and honor. So those who walk in 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 wisdom uh, can expect to receive uh, good. Uh, and now there is a there's an interesting kind of interplay there because that kind of sounds like Job's friends, right? But the thing to remember is that this is indeed wisdom literature. And one of the big themes of wisdom literature, okay? Think Job, think a lot of Proverbs, think Ecclesiastes. One of the big themes is that, um, is that oftentimes this world does seem unjust. That that And so, although if I generally follow the path of wisdom things will go well with me that is true there are exceptions and understanding and acknowledging those exceptions is is something like wisdom and so part of reading wisdom is realizing that these are not mechanical laws of the universe this is this is simply how the wise person lives in god's world i mean cuz what if in general if you are walking in foolishness you will receive what fools receive that doesn't mean that there's no exceptions to that if in general you are walking in wisdom you will receive the honor of those who walk in wisdom um and uh and then it goes on to say by wisdom the lord founded the earth and established the heavens and here it's not portraying lady wisdom as some kind of you know co-deity that helps god in his creation or something like that no this is uh this is simply saying that wisdom is found is 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 kind of woven into the very fabric of reality that god created the earth and he created it as a place in which in which wisdom works wisdom is is right and good okay uh, now i'm going to go down to matthew chapter 9 chapter uh, verses 16 through 30 and this is the story of the rich young man so <clears throat> he comes up to jesus and he says, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And automatically, some flags should be going off, right? That that is there some kind of single good deed that puts you forever in the right with God, that that gives you this 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 precious thing that is called here eternal life. Um, and uh, and Jesus says to him, "Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good." Um, and which is a little bit of a—must have been a little bit of a frustrating answer, okay? Because—but but but here what Jesus is doing is exposing kind of the silliness of the question. Um, uh, th- if there's only one who is good, obviously referring to God, then why are you asking me how you could be that? You're not. <laughs> no, no one is good. Um, so there, there's already something sideways about thinking about things like this. But then he goes, well, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay, so let's see. Then let's see how you do with this one. And this this is kind of how God initially comes at all of us. Okay, that He gives us a conscience, He gives us His His expressed law, and we are to follow. So, you know, are you going to take the path of life? And unfortunately, as we know, as we're reminded, for example, in the early chapters of Romans, especially chapter one, we all actually choose death. With and and rebellion against God, but uh, leading this guy on this uh, on this uh, this this little thought experiment, he then comes to to God, to Jesus and says, "Which ones? Again, another ridiculous statement from him. <laughs> keep the commandments of God. Okay, well, which ones are the ones I need to keep, and which ones are the ones I can ignore? It's like what? Um, and Jesus begins by starting with these very obvious ones that. We can all kind of check the box on. Do not murder. Have you ever murdered someone? No. Okay. And keep in mind, a lot of us will often go to the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, you have heard it said, but I say, you shall not murder, but I say to you that, you know, you you shouldn't be angry with your brother. That's adultery and uh, murder in the heart, right? And then he goes on and he talks about adultery of the heart and things like that. That's probably not in view here, Um, although that is in Matthew and that is a category that's been introduced in Matthew. Um, I mean it's not to say it's not true. It's just what Jesus is referring to here. It it's not as if this man has just heard the Sermon on the Mount and understands that. So I think it's just safe to say he just means do not murder, right? This and then you shall not steal. Okay. Um I I, I really have am not a thief. Maybe I've stolen some stuff. I, I took something when I was a kid, and, and maybe some things I can do I do could be construed as theft. Ugh. Um you shall not bear false witness have you always told the truth about people okay the, the and and so these things where the moral certitude with which we can say all right been there done that is less and less and then honor your father and mother uh do i really honor them what does that mean that's so vague right what does it mean to honor them and and then finally you shall love your neighbor as yourself something which interestingly is not from the 10 commandments but this is from uh, Leviticus 19 verse 18 uh but there is something that we can never check a box on have i ever re- at what point am i really loving my neighbor as myself I do- have i ever really arrived at that and so what you have here is a distinction between uh between what um Andy Naselli who is a theologian calls uh uh, light switches and dimmer switch commandments, right? What is a light switch? It's either on or off. Did you murder? No. Okay. Uh, but then dimmer switches, right? That that's it's more bright or less bright. Uh, so yeah, I've this is more loving towards my neighbor, but I can't say I've fully done that, right? I can't say it's fully on, quote unquote. Um, and that's that's the idea. Some commandments of God are like are like. Uh, On and off switches. Some of them are like dimmer switches, and I think that's a helpful way to think of this. And so, with each commandment, Jesus is essentially uh, saying to anybody who's being honest in their heart, "You you don't really keep God's commandments." And so, if you're if if the if the premise that you're operating on is "What good deed must I have to to enter eternal life," uh, are we seeing how silly that is yet? and the young man says to him again, another ridiculous thing. All these I have kept. What still do I lack? Uh, really, have you have you kept these? And Jesus doesn't refute them and say, No, you haven't. Okay. Instead, he just goes on and on and because the question is like, Which of the commandments do I need to keep? Okay. Well, you say you've kept these. Okay. I'm not even going to argue with me with you, but just maybe think about that for a while. How silly that is. But uh, all right, let's up the ante a little bit. Uh, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And at that point, that is the point beyond which this man now says, all right, no, no, I I don't want it. Um, And he's not, in fact, understanding, to put it in the words of Jesus in Matthew, what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a a treasure buried in a field, and a man sells all he has so he can buy that field. It's like that pearl of great value. It's like that lost coin that the woman just tore apart her house looking for. What is that thing that Jesus asks you to give up in following him that is, thus far I can go and no more? No, Jesus, it's not worth giving up that. Is it, is it, is it, some aspect of of what you do with your time is it some aspect of 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 something that that delights you is it um is it money you know uh, um, is it your sexuality what is it that if jesus asked me to give it up i would say you know what no this is more important to me than following you um, it's a very very convicting question and the man here um hears this and goes away sorrowful because he has great Possessions and this, this, it, this has Jesus saying, "Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven." Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and I and I will say that this is a very challenging passage. And the the first thing we want to say, because and anybody being honest with those of us who live in the affluent West. We are these rich people. We we are wealthier than the majority of people who have ever lived on this planet. And so, just to to compare yourself to Jeff Bezos or, or Steve Jobs or, or Elon Musk or something, say oh that those are the rich guys. No, if you are choosing between a hundred different boxes of cereal, uh, if you're wondering which restaurant you want to eat at, you are more wealthy than most people who have ever lived. And this is very challenging. And so the the, the The knee-jerk reaction to this is often to try to say, well, here's why we don't need to take this seriously, sell all you have and give to the poor. But just to be super convicting, isn't it those who make that excuse, who, who start fishing for excuses, exactly the kind of people who need to hear what Jesus is saying here? Uh, this is no cheap discipleship here. And the disciples re- recognize this, right? The disciples then say, "Who then can be saved? And now, I think it's interesting that they that they that they use the term saved here, um, because it's important to realize that biblical terms that kind of enter into our Christian vocabulary, um, sometimes they don't always mean everything we load them with, right? When we say sa- saved, what are we thinking? We're thinking saved from our sin and going to be with the Lord forever. Um, but is that always how, quote-unquote, salvation is used on the Bible? Sometimes it's deliverance from circumstances. Uh, but here I think we have uh, Matthew's way of using this in a way that is close to our conception of, quote-unquote, being saved— Note that um, in chapter one, verse twenty-one, uh, the angel told Joseph, "You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And then, when talking about persecution in chapter ten, verse twenty-two, Jesus says, "The one who endures to the end will be saved." This is this is eternal life, kind of salvation. And and the cool thing about eternal life too is that um, as 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 uh, R.T. France says in his phenomenal Matthew commentary, he says that eternal life in Matthew, if you look at all the places, we get this portrait of, it's this this state of, quote, ultimate well-being, which is compatible with loss of physical life, right? It's compatible with the loss of physical life. It's not just being part of his kingdom here and now. There is a future aspect of it, something that we can enjoy even when we are physically killed. So, <coughs> this is uh, just Matthew's way of saying this um, this concept of giving this concept to us. And I think it's it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, the disciples are like, "Who then can be saved? Um, isn't it isn't it just this this futile thing?" Um, and Jesus turns and he says, "With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible." Which is something that we love to quote. <laughs> um, but um, and and certainly, I think the principle is true: with God, all things are possible. And so, this some mountain or or really difficult situation in my life that I can't see how God can overcome it. Yes, He can. But I think it is important to realize that the context in which that statement is actually used is how hard is it to save people who have a lot of possessions. Um, those who, who, ign- who, because of their their comfort and their ease in this life, don't sense this desperate need that they have for the Lord, and um, and their riches in essence blind them, and that we have to ensure that that doesn't happen to us, and we're we're all we're all called to that. Uh, so Peter then replies, "See, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have?" And Jesus says. And again, here is this future orientation to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that is inaugurated, that it is breaking in on this world, but there is a future state at which things will be absolute. So uh, truly, I say to you, in the new world, uh, you could say the do-over, right, the renewed creation, in Greek, the polygenesia, um you will sit on who have who have followed me will sit also will also sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel and i don't think this means that jesus is going to be you know when it comes to judging the 12 tribes he's like all right you know what i'm going to take a coffee break um uh, peter and the rest of you uh, you guys are the ones who judge them no I, I, here i think of judging more in the sense in the which it's used in the book of judges as we'll see which there is not merely just somebody who who makes judicial calls on people right guilty not guilty but actually leadership uh, prominence Um, uh, yeah like that that's what it means when you know some military deliverer in the book of judges is said to judge Israel it's not saying that he's um, or very rarely is it used in that book to denote what we would think of as judging and I think that's the sense it's used or here but think of think of what this is saying okay the that that the twelve patriarchs of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, that the apostles, those who have left everything to follow Jesus, they will have prominence over them in the kingdom of God, that what Jesus is doing now in history is supersedes what was done then. Um, And uh, you will receive everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or or mother or children or lands for my name's sake— will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, so those those whom you think most belong there um, will actually be last in the kingdom, but as Jesus says, the one who serves is going to be the first, the one who is humble, the one who maybe you don't notice is going to be first in the kingdom. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to uh, looking at our passages together tomorrow. But until then, as always, take care. Bye-bye.